Hmm. A little out of practice. Not really. I'm just kidding. I didn't actually take a full month off. Uh, but uh, anyways, I put down on my notes, address my absence. Like I've been up somewhere doing up to no good or something. I don't know. So it's address apt, absence. Okay, so I've been gone for a month. You know that. So that's good. Check mark. Okay. I do have some other news, though. So I think I told Paul. I don't know if I told the rest of you, but... I recently accepted a job at AM Church of Christ as the director of operations. So I will be in town for the foreseeable future. I don't know if I'll be here at Hearn. Uh, I, I don't think Dean wants me here at Hearn every Sunday or even every other Sunday. But I told him for this semester, I said, I have a commitment to these people. I'm going to fulfill that commitment. I'll be here in the spring. And so I'll kind of be here off and on every Sunday. And what I went ahead and did, since I am off and on, I was like, I don't want to just come and preach a different sermon every Sunday and then the elders and then these two guys over here come and preach a different sermon every Sunday that has no connection. And so I was like, I'll see if I can draft a 10-part series. So I'm kind of working on that, see if we can do it, continuing on next week. And I guess the series is this, trying to build up towards Easter, okay? Uh, God's name, Emmanuel, right? Jesus' name, Emmanuel, Luke 2, which means God with us. We use that term at Christmas. I think that's kind of silly if that's the only place we use it because really we should be using it when we're talking about the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and the four Gospels uh, leading up to the crucifixion during Easter Sunday as we celebrate it. So I'll say this. What God has done, what God being with us, he has broken through the cosmic barrier into our existence. So he has, he has penetrated this gap that is between heaven and the earth. And he has manifested himself into our own dark reality, which is extraordinary. I mean, no other religion says that God has become a man just like we are. It's, it's insane. And so if God has done something that's so unexpected and so uh, incredible, we have some questions to ask him. I'll ask a few of these right now. What has God come to do? What has God come to give? What does he bring to the world? Who does Jesus come to during his ministry? And who does he encounter? And who does Jesus encounter in these one-on-one -on -one moments that, that proves to us that he is indeed God with us? Because everybody has an opinion about Jesus, right? We have history books. We have traditions. We have catechisms and confessions and everything else in the world that tries to tell you who Jesus Christ is. But the best way to know who Jesus Christ is is to go into those four Gospels and look at his one-on-one -on -one encounters that he has with people just like you. All kinds of different people, religious people, rich people, poor people, hungry people, thirsty people, all of it. And so that's what I want to do coming up upon Easter. Let's build a biography, I guess I'll say it that way. And so today, what are we going to do today? God with the weary. How about that? Is that good? God with the weary. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. Matthew 11 and Matthew 12. Heston, you got that up? Okay, good. It's up there. Cool. All right. This is the word of God, starting in verse 25. It says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw them, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests to do. For haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known that these words, known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have not have condemned these innocent people. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ancient words that have been preserved over the course of multiple millennium, given to us for all instruction and correction and rebuking and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped to be lights in the world and to be salt in this world and to conquer the world for our King who reigns now at your right hand. Bless us, help us to know that you are with the weary and with the tired and that you give us rest. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Alrighty. So it's kind of like a political campaign. We're kind of getting in the heat of the moment right now. We kind of just had the Iowa caucuses. We have politicians going back and forth who are flying from state to state. They're championing this big vision and this big vision, the vision and mission for the country. And they're securing donations. They're giving speeches. They're building rapport with the rich and the poor and with the common people alike and trying to earn some like I said, report some kind of popularity with the common people in order to gain votes, in order to achieve the milestone of gaining political office. It's kind of similar to Jesus in some ways, okay? Jesus is going from city to city. He's championing the mission and the vision of God on earth, and he's saying that a new administration is coming. Something else is about to take over the earth, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. And with it, he has a renewed goal of helping the weak people and the powerless and he has a goal to secure disciples, not donations, all right? And with it, that mission that Jesus declares is this. He says, I have come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. And the difference between Jesus' campaign and our campaigns is this, all right? It's not about economic prosperity. It's not about military success. It's not about how to congratulate the rich and the religious elite on a job well done. It's quite the opposite, okay? That's what Jesus' ministry is about. The mission entered into the world was to bring this. It's three things. To reveal the kingdom of heaven, to reconcile sinners to God, and to restore the world back to paradise as it was in the beginning, okay? And many of the cities did not like this mission because many of these cities, they wanted economic prosperity. They wanted someone who was going to bring military success, someone who was going to conquer Rome for the Jews, who was going to bring this military kingdom on earth. But Jesus says it's not going to be that way. That's not what I mean. And we come to this place in Capernaum where Jesus is preaching now, which is essentially the headquarters of his campaign. And what Jesus pretty much just did, if you read the passage before this, he just ripped them a new one. <laughs> pretty much he says, you're condemned to hell. He said, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented before you do. And these are cities filled with religious people. And he says, you won't repent. You won't believe the gospel. He says, you're condemned. And now he comes to this point in his campaign where he says, I'll tell you the people that I come to save, the people I come to speak to. He compares these people to children. And I'll explain to you why, because that's what you read in the beginning of the passage we read. He said that these people are like children because they recognize their own ignorance. Children ask questions. Why? Why? Well, we're going to go do this. Why? Why do you want to do that? Why? Right? 
children ask questions. They plead to learn because children know that their own foolishness, they know their own foolishness and they lack wisdom. And so those kinds of people who come to Jesus, who come to hear him preach are the first people who are in line to hear and to accept the gospel, right? It's the castaways in societies. It's the tax collectors and the, and the sinners and uh, the the prostitutes and the pimps, I guess you could say. It's the most unlikely people that hear the message first and who accept the message first. Uh, and what they're in line for is what Jesus has to say. He says, I've come to reveal myself to you. I've come to reveal the Father to you. He says, I've come to bring you into communion. He says, only I have this relationship, this intimate relationship and the sharing of community with God. He says, but my purpose on the earth is to give that to you and to give you something else. Because one of the central aspects of having communion and having relationship with God is this God with us factor. It is this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, I will give you a yoke that gives rest for your soul. Jesus is giving an invitation. You're going to have a, be sending wedding invitations out soon, right, Nathan? That's right. Okay, Jesus is doing the same thing. He says, I'm inviting you into something. And no wonder he calls the disciples. He says, come and see. He says, come and I will give you rest. What are the implications of that? Who are the kinds of people Jesus is addressing? Four things to look at today. The first thing is the precept of rest. We're looking at rest. The precept of rest. Number two is the purpose of rest. Number three is the problem of rest. And number four, best of all, is the person of rest. Precept, purpose, problem, person. If you haven't figured me out yet, I like to have certain little words of alliteration to help carry me and you through the boringness of a sermon. So here we go. This one's short, the precept of rest. Very short because it's cut and dry, because it's cut and dry in the Old Testament law. Okay, Verses 1 and 2 says in chapter 12, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The precept of rest. There's a precept. What a precept means is it's a command. It's an ordinance from God that he gives to us for our good and for his glory. All right? And so the precept of rest or of Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Like I said, cut, it's pretty simple. It's part of the moral law. In Exodus 20, when God gives Moses the law, he says, Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. He says, Six days you shall labor, and six days you shall work. On the seventh day you shall rest. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, not your sons, not your daughters, not your male or female servants, not even your animals, and not the foreigner residing in your towns. Sabbath would run from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And on the Sabbath, what the people would do is they would consult the prophets. So they would consult the preachers, you know, make confessions, whatever it was. The priests would offer double sacrifices in the temple. And the people, of course, would rest with their families, centered around their families, inside their homes. Breaking the Sabbath law meant being excommunicated or executed. God was serious about rest. God's serious about rest, and we'll get a, a little bit into that here in just a second. Our second point is this. What is the purpose of rest? I'll tell you the purpose of rest. Because Exodus 20 also says this. Exodus 20 gives you the purpose of rest. It gives you the answer. Why does God command us to rest on a specific day every day of the week, or at least for the Israelites? It says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. For six days God worked, and He made everything that's in the earth, and on the seventh day... He rested. It actually says, but he rested on the seventh day, but indicating there's something important about that. And therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. So who does Sabbath come from? Who's the first Sabbath rester? It's God. 
He says, I want you to have that too. And as the Lord had worked, he then rested, and he wants to do the same for his people. And I'll tell you why. Why does God want us to rest? It's why he does it, but I'll tell you why he does it. What did God say when he made all the creation? He said, it is what? Not just good. He says, it is very good. The purpose of rest and of Sabbath is this. It's to look back on the previous week and it's to say, very good. I did very good. I'll continue with that. He's saying, find joy in what you do. Find joy in the work I've given you to do. The purpose and the essence of Sabbath is to take joy in what God is doing through you, which clearly demonstrates that what you do for your vocation matters. Your job matters. The work you do in your marriage matters. The work you do in your family matters. The work you do in your church clearly matters. And God says, the seventh day is for you to rest from it, and on that rest to remember and to examine and to see, am I stewarding these parts of my life for the kingdom of God? Am I stewarding them in obedience to God? Am I finding joy in that? That's the purpose of Sabbath rest. And you're supposed to find this balance too. It's about finding the balance between work and rest. Work for God and your rest in God. And so on that Sabbath day, we approach Sunday, we approach the rest of the week, the next week that's going to come. What it's supposed to do is it's supposed to permeate you. It's supposed to recycle back into the remainder of the next week so that everything you do, every thought, every word, every deed, and every step can be more fruitful and beneficial for everybody else around you, for everything, the whole creation around you that you're supposed to take care of. But really, the essence and the purpose of Sabbath rest is even more. In Deuteronomy 5, God actually ties the Sabbath rest to something else. He ties it back to when Israel left Egypt. He ties it back to freedom from slavery. And I'll explain how that can be right here. Tim Keller, fantastic preacher, one of my favorites, he says, Anyone who overworks is really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave. A slave to a need for success, a slave to a materialistic culture, to exploitative employers, to parental expectations, or to all the above. These slave masters will abuse you if you're not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath, what it is, is a declaration of freedom, not a declaration of slavery. The Sabbath is more than about the external rest of your physical body. It's about the inner rest of your soul. That's what it's about. So the biggest picture, the deepest essence of rest is to confirm your freedom from the world and your freedom in God that he gives you from the world. The God who rescues out of the, rescues you out of Egypt, who leads you through the Red Sea, and who guides you through the desert storms and the desert droughts, just like he did with Israel in the 40 years in the wilderness. And so while in the purpose of rest, let me assist you in giving you a bonus. I'll give you a bonus that falls under the purpose of rest. How about the practical rest? I can't just come up here and teach you about rest and not tell you how to implement it in your life. That'd be silly. The practical of rest. You need to find a time for you. That is the most selfish, worldly thing you can say. You've got to find a time for you. One well, certain essence, and in a, in a context, God really does mean that. You have to find a time for yourself and for your family, and it needs to be set apart from the rest of the world. And it needs to be set apart from work. And it needs to be set apart from worry. You don't have to chain yourself to work. I was telling a buddy this other day, I said, I was kind of going over what I was going to preach this Sunday. I said, I'm such a hypocrite. I really am a hypocrite. You could probably ask my buddy Heston. I'm a 21-year-old workaholic. Like 100% of 21-year-old workaholic. Like I am on the go. And if I'm resting, if I sit in the recliner, I start to get really angsty. Like even on a Saturday, even on a Sunday after I'm done preaching, I start to feel like I got to be doing something. 
I got to be doing something. But my goal and my mission is that by the time I'm out of college, I will find that one 24 hours, one 24 hour day of zero work and to find a rhythm in it. Not so much as a command, but so much because God wants that for me. Take a moment of sheer pleasure. Sheer pleasure. Watch a movie. Take the kids out for ice cream. Go bowling. For me, it's actually mowing the yard and watching the Dallas Cowboys in the fall and trying to figure out what to do on Sunday afternoon when the Cowboys aren't playing and losing. Okay? Take a walk. Go for a swim. Take a run. Hang out with friends. Drop the kids off at the grandparents. Go on a date night. You know what happens with the rest, right? That's rest. That's what God wants for you. Take purposeful, worshipful, prayerful rest. Don't bring work home. Don't bring the bills home. Don't bring the taxes home. Don't bring, I even say, keep your phone on. Do not disturb. Text messages, phone calls, those can go for some period of time. Don't worry. Don't work. Let it go for one day. That's what God actually says I want you to do. He says that's for you because that will renew you. And God's purpose for rest for the ancient Hebrews, the Jews of Jesus' day, and the purpose of rest for you is just that practical. God's very practical. He wants rest to be practical. He doesn't just want it to be a command. He wants it to be something that flourishes your life. It's to replenish your energy, to renew your thoughts, to rejuvenate your work ethic, and to remind you of the God you have rest in. More on that later. But there's a problem of rest. Precept, purpose, and practical problem of rest. I'll read verses 3 through 5. We start to encounter the problem of rest right here. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? There's not a problem in and of itself with the Sabbath rest. The problem lies with the certain people who oversaw the rest, the certain people who attached regulations on the rest. I'll explain it this way. The best way to understand who Jesus is and understand what he has to say in the specific statement here is to understand the context of the people he's speaking to. The goal of this series, who is Jesus talking to and how does who he's talking to tell us about who he is? Let me explain to you. Who surrounds Jesus? All kinds of people. In this moment, there's probably a crowd around him. I'll tell you the three kinds of people Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the liberals, the lay people, and the legalists. And the liberals and the lay people and the legalists are all encaptured by what he has to say. The liberals are in awe, the lay people are skeptical, and the legalists are enraged. And to each type of man, woman, and child, there's a certain message that they hear that is impactful to their lives. That's the same message, but I'll tell you where it starts to defer. You see, the liberals, what I mean by liberals is I mean the strange wanderers, the hippies. All right, The prodigal sons of society who, with Jesus, have found a path of true freedom instead of fake freedom. The lay people are the blue-collar people. They're the middle class who stand perplexed and questioning what Jesus has to say. They're ordinary. And then there's the legalists. These are the religious elite. These are the religious zealots who are envious by Jesus' crowds, who are offended by Jesus' words and are hardened in their own hearts. And the legalists in this setting, in the context of who Jesus is speaking to, says, you've done what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Were they right? Has he done what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Yes, they're right. Jesus broke the law. But whose law did he break? He didn't break God's law. He broke man's law. And that's the problem of rest. The command was twisted. Man's law is when he takes God's law and he attaches something to it 
or he takes something away from it. They take away the purpose and the essence of it, and they add more regulations. In Deuteronomy 23, and Jesus, this is this is really cool because I almost wonder if Deuteronomy 23 was written for the specific part of Jesus' ministry. In Deuteronomy 23, the law of God addresses this specific situation, like actually, and it's totally opposite of what the Pharisees have to say. In the Torah, in the law of God, the law states that people were permitted to do just a thing, to go into a neighbor's field and to go pluck grain. Not enough to, not to fill up their baskets and take back home, but just enough, to, just enough to be provided for. And actually, the law went beyond that, far above and beyond that, and actually commanded landowners, people who are landowners, actually commanded you landowners to share, to reserve a certain portion every year, every month, and every week of your harvest for certain specific people, for the travelers and for the foreigners and for the weary pilgrims. Who are the disciples? The homeless, shelterless, hungry pilgrims going from city to city to city. And in addressing the issue of working on Sabbath, he doesn't even bother deconstructing the fact that they created additional rules. He actually just goes to quote Scripture. He goes and he tells a Bible story. He says, let me explain it to you this way, he says, and he defends the disciples. He points out the essence of the law and not just the letter of the law. Verses 3 through 5, we read it already. All right, I got to ask, well, Jesus is saying this. Did not King David do just the same thing? Did David do the same thing? David who goes in the temple and he eats the priest bread, the bread that was commanded by the law to only be eaten by priests at a certain time in the week. But Jesus is saying, is not human need more important than a ceremonial ritual? Is the essence of the law not more important than the letter of the law? David did not eat the sacrificial bread because he wanted to profane God. He didn't do it out of gluttony. He did it to fulfill a basic need, a basic human need for his own companions. That is the law of love, which is truly what the law of God is about. And do the temple priests not technically break the law all the time? What Jesus is referencing here is the temple priest would work on the Sabbath. They actually worked on the Sabbath. They would offer sacrifices. And they didn't just offer sacrifices. They offered a double amount of sacrifices. It wasn't just work devotion. It was double work devotion. But the religious leaders and the cultural elite made the Sabbath law a work and need a strict completion in order to reach God. You have to do this to reach God. And you have to do it by the letter, by crossing the T's and dotting your I's to reach God, to ever get to Him. This is from a commentary I was reading. It says, At this time in history, many rabbis filled Judaism with elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath and observance of other laws. Ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand across his chest or on his shoulder, but he could carry something with the back of his hand, with his foot, with his elbow, or in the ear, or on the hair, or in the hem of his shirt, or in a shoe, or on a sandal. On the Sabbath, one was forbidden to tie a knot, except a woman who could tie a knot in her girdle. So if a bucket of water, there's another one, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, one could not tie a rope to the bucket, because that's work. But a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket, and then to the rope, and then it wouldn't be work. I got more. The Pharisees created 1,500 additional fence laws, and I'm about to tell you all why. Now, here's just a few. You couldn't spit on Sabbath because it would disturb the dirt. They would call it farming. You cannot swat a fly on the Sabbath because you would be guilty of hunting. A woman could not look at her own reflection, ladies, could not look at her own reflection in a mirror because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be doing work. 
And they also created loopholes around the law. If your house was burning down on Sabbath, you couldn't grab all your clothes and grab all your belongings and rush them out of the house. Here's what you could do, though. You could put on as many clothes as you wanted and layer them up on your clothes and wear them out of the house rather than carrying them, and it wouldn't be work. I'm serious. In the next few verses, the Pharisees condemned Jesus for healing a man's shriveled hand on Sabbath. You've done work on Sabbath. You've created this miracle. And Jesus is like, does not the law of love triumph your ceremonial made-up additional regulations? That's what he's saying. And how can he say such a thing? And you sit here and you're laughing and you think this is ridiculous. But we've done the same thing. We've done the same exact thing. We've made a problem of rest too. This is kind of edgy, but I'll kind of go through it anyway. Because these are the things I see in the church. Sometimes we make worship a strict checklist of dotting I's and crossing T's. And we create extra biblical fences, such as terms as aid and addition, and apply it to the very state of a church's salvation. Regarding unity, we create additional regulations that sometimes cut off anybody that doesn't do it just like we do. And I'm not talking about primary doctrine. I'm not talking about dogma. I'm talking about tertiary things, like things that Jesus didn't even preach on. We make it a doctrine. We say, you don't believe exactly the same way. You're not a Christian. I could go on and on and on. How about, oh, here's one, this one. I thought about this when I woke up this morning. I don't know why. Included anyway. Or how many won't support widows and orphans and the poor institutionally because there's no mention of the church in the Bible using its own funds to support children's homes or orphanages or nursing homes, right? These are things we have seen that we have done. I could go on and on and on about catechisms and confessions, about stained glass and carpet color. We've done just the same thing. We've made a problem of rest. We've made a problem of God's commands just as the Pharisees did. And we, Jesus says, I have enough of that mentality. He says, let's get to the purpose. Let's get back to the essence. What is Jesus saying? Jesus Christ is saying that the law of love triumphs the law of tradition and of ceremony. And Jesus is saying true obedience to God is what most fulfills love. And Jesus points to the purpose of the law, the essence. He is saying that the problem of rest lies within how mortal man taints and twists God's law. Sabbath laws were not meant to restrict deeds of necessity or restrict service to God or restrict acts of mercy to another human being. Sabbath is for man's benefit and for God's glory. That's what Sabbath is for. And that's what Jesus is saying. It was never intended, read from another commentator, it was never intended to be used as a yoke of bondage on people because it's not about restriction, it's about freedom. The law of God is not meant to restrict, it's meant to free if you're one of God's people. And so what else does he say? Because he says something else. He says that something greater than the temple has arrived. Something greater than the commands has arrived. Because what the temple and the represented and what the Sabbath rest represented when they meet in their homes, what it represented was the presence of God. God with us. And it represented the communion that God's people have with God. The temple was an illustration of God with us. Jesus Christ is saying, that he is the greater temple, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying that I am God with man. He is the in-flesh presence and communion of God. And as a temple, he is worthy of all. All love, all wonder, all honor, all fear, all sacrifice, all service, and all worship. So after Jesus covers this problem of rest, after this problem of rest, we warm up to the ultimate conclusion about rest, and that's the person of rest. 
we'll wrap it up right here. Because ultimately, rest is not a specific thing. Sabbath is not a specific thing or command. It's more of a person. It's more of a person. It's found in God. When I say it's more of a person and that's found in God, I don't mean what your hippie universalist preacher would say about some strange spiritual concept, a vague spiritual concept. It's not that at all. It's a very it's about a very real God with us. The God who is with the weary. But before I explain the person of rest, you need to understand here's an additional understand the picture of rest. How about that? I'll give you a picture of rest. And we you kind of saw if you're in Bible class, you saw pictures of this earlier, but the Israelites were nomadic wanderers for much of their history, right? Think about Abraham and his sons. They were wandering around. They were on the way to Canaan. Abraham was a big traveler. That's what he did. Didn't have an RV, but he had a tent. Or when Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, they were in a desert. The deserts were hot by day. They were cold by night. They were dry and they were dusty and they were sunny. And they were littered with wild animals that could eat them. And in case you didn't know, being a desert nomad is pretty tiring work. You're at work all the time. You're walking 15 miles a day, 20 miles a day. But God would provide in this weariness and in this restlessness. But in that desert, though there was a weary people, there was a pillar of fire to lead them by night and a cloud by day. And there was a temple, a temporary temple called a tabernacle where they could meet God and sacrifice to God. And through all of this, there's one thing God would provide. He'd provide oasis. You're in a desert. What do you need? You need trees to shelter you from the sun every now and then. You need water to quench your thirst every day. You need bread to satisfy your hunger every morning. God would provide you with. You're going through a desert. Look at all that on the outside, on the top of the picture. You find that in the middle? Oh, my goodness. What a day or what a night that would be for you if you were in a desert. I hope you're starting to get it. The person of rest is much like this picture, but he's exceedingly greater. The person of rest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, come to me. He says, and he declares, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And he promulgates that I am rest. That's the entire biblical narrative, people, that God is rest. That's what Sabbath is about. Sabbath is about God is rest. In the creation, God was saying, I am rest. Genesis chapter 1. In the desert, Exodus 19, God was saying, I am rest. And standing before heavy burdened people and the heavy burdeners, so the liberals and the lay people and the legalists alike, the Messiah says, I am rest. He says, I am the rest. How can he say such a thing like that? How is Jesus the person of rest? I'll explain it to you. Months after Jesus preached this, he was nailed to a cross. And the exact opposite of rest was placed upon him. Jesus was ripped into pieces and painful toil. He was bled out in ultimate labor. And he took the yoke of total drudgery on the cross. He did the ultimate work of God. He became utterly weary. The yoke that was upon him was the sins of the world, yours and mine. And was born against a greater yoke, which was the wrath of God itself. And it wasn't placed upon you. It was placed on him instead. And Jesus Christ bled and atoned and died in order to bring you into the perfect rest with God that you could never get through your own rest. 
that you can never get with anything else in this world, that you can never get with your good works or with your obedience to the commands. He was completely crushed, Isaiah 53, in weariness so that you could have true, undeniable rest from being weary. God is with the weary, right? That's why I wanted to preach this first. Best way to know God is with us is because of what he did on the cross. He became sin so that we could become his righteousness, right? He became totally tired and totally weary. He did the ultimate work on the cross. That was the most painful labor anybody could go through, to drag a cross through the streets, to be lashed by, by whips with pieces of bone and glass in them, to be nailed to a cross, and then to have to literally push himself up, of which he's on the nails, push himself up so that just so he could work to breathe and it killed him. I think you understand how that was worked now. Jesus received the yoke of the law and the yoke of sacrifice, the yoke of sin, the yoke of darkness, and the yoke of weariness so that you could receive the yoke of love, the yoke of mercy, the yoke of salvation, the yoke of light, and the light and the yoke of rest. Huh. I didn't know if I'd include this, but I wrote it in this morning just in case. I'll go ahead and I'll give an attempt. Because I have a certain story that relates just with being weary and being tired and toilsome. And I told it to you before in a much more vague way, but I'll give it to you another way. Because last year, first three months of the year, I was weary and I was tired and I had a yoke that I did not, could not get off of me. I was thinking I wasn't enough and I was thinking I wasn't doing enough for God. And I was thinking, why am I still struggling with these certain temptations and these certain sins? And it made me think that I wasn't a Christian. It was making me think I didn't have the salvation that God had promised me. And so what it made me resort to was to rely on what I had done. To rely on what I had been doing. My toil, my work was an explanation, was the total explanation. Not to say that good tree doesn't bear you know, good fruit. But it was my explanation. It was my proof that I was a Christian, that I was adored and loved by God and saved by God. And it wore me out to death. It wore me out to death. That spiritual toil that you're not supposed to have. No one's supposed to have something like that on them. And I remember it was mid-March, and I'd just come to the end of it. I, I was just too tired. And I was listening to a certain worship song, and it just brought me to tears. And I drove all the way home crying. And there was a certain line in the song that says this. It says, I approach the throne of glory. Nothing in my hands I bring but your promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. I don't bring the work to God. And the reason I don't bring the work to God is because he's already done it for me, like I just told you. I was weary for no reason. I was toilsome for no reason. And I go home, and I fall. I like to nap on the floor. So I was sitting on the floor. I just didn't know what was going on for my mind. I just fell asleep, just in total. In total, my mind was just confused. It was like earbuds that get tangled up. I didn't know what to think. Who was I? Was I saved? Was I not? I wake up two hours later. Nothing. Just calm. Just rest. That's all it was. And the next day, while I'm working out at the gym, listening to a podcast, there's a certain man named Mark Spence who says a certain phrase that confirmed to me what had happened and what I knew about myself and what I knew about Jesus, that he was with me and he was with the weary. He said, it's not take great faith to save someone. It just takes faith in a great God. 
And it was saying, my great faith is not proved by my great amount of works. It's proved by the great amount of work Jesus already did for me. And it brought me back to the gospel and it renewed me and refreshed me and replenished me. And I've been hitting the ground running since. That's what happened. Do you know even why you sit here this morning? I'm serious. Why are you at church right now 2,000 years later? That's why. Because today is the new Sabbath rest day. Because on the third day, Jesus rose and defeated death. And he says, I've done all the work. It is finished. It is accomplished for you. Come and gather and meet and remember what I've done and remember what I'm still doing through you. Remember the works that I'm doing through you so that you can go into the next week and continue to do just as what I have done for you by loving you and by preaching the truth in the Spirit. Today's a new Sabbath rest. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works. Not by works that no one can boast. You can't own it. You can't work enough to get it. In fact, if you spend your whole time, we don't, we don't work to get rest. I wish people would understand that. We don't work to rest. We rest to work. Right? And Jesus says just the same. That's the purpose of rest. That's what a relationship with God is about. The work's been done and now we rest. And if we are in his rest, then we go out and work. And you can't get your freedom and forgiveness by your own work. The beauty of redemption and of rest is that it is a purely free gift. Jesus says that mercy triumphs over sacrifice. And he says, he talks about mercy and grace, the triumphing sacrifice, because it is the mercy and grace that is given to us because of his sacrifice. And until you grasp that, you can never have rest for your soul. A person is saved when he stops working to be saved. What? No other religion says that. Muhammad doesn't say that. Gandhi doesn't say that. Buddha doesn't say that. Aristotle doesn't say that. The Pope doesn't say that. The Pharisees would never say such a thing. Only Christianity says something that is as offensive as that. It says you can't do enough to get it. It says it's just given. You just got to believe. That's all it is. And so I ask, are you weary? Do you have rest? Because I want you to know that God is with the weary. In Hebrews 4, the writer quotes, I think from Isaiah, and he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God rests, also rests from their works, just as God did from his. He says, Let us therefore make every effort. I don't know why I chose the word effort, because it's not really about effort. But he says, Make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for a beautiful week. We thank you for that the sun rises in the sky every day and reminds us that just says the sun is faithful in rising, so is the sun faithful, your son faithful in saving us by his resurrection too. I thank you for the rest that you give us. Help us to understand the precept. But in order to understand the precept, we have to understand the purpose. And to understand the purpose, we need to understand what the problem is and how to avoid it. And to understand the problem and the purpose and the precept, we have to understand the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who entered into our reality to give us rest from our weariness. God, we thank you for this truth that is given by the Word of God that cannot be compared to by any other God or religion. This is unique, and it is good. It is, it is fulfilling and it is satisfying like nothing else that the world has to offer. We thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.